Welcome to Prima's 2022 podcast series. My name is Shonda Ragland. I am the Director of Education at Prima. On this Prima podcast, Sarah Lintecum will discuss managing environmental legal risk, what to know. Sarah serves as the counsel at Lothrop GPM LLP. We will also be joined by Prima's Education Coordinator, Taekwon Gilbert. Taekwon will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you for joining us today, Sarah. Hey, thank you, Taekwon. I'm excited to be here and appreciate the opportunity. So what types of environmental risks should our listeners be thinking about when considering their organization's insurance needs? Yeah, so before I launch into the specific environmental risks that I think our listeners need to be paying attention to, I just want to take the time to note that environmental risks are pervasive and the impact of environmental losses is not just felt by the organizations that we would traditionally think of as sources of pollution. Environmental risks really do impact all types of organizations and entities. And specifically why this is important is that general liability policies largely do not cover costs for cleanup, remediation, or associated legal actions. And so I just want to note for our listeners that they're more persuasive than you might think. And having said that, as we move further into 2022, I do think that there are some a few key environmental risks that listeners ought to be paying attention to and plan for. And the first is evaluating the impact that climate change is going to have on your organization. We know that natural disasters like hurricanes and flooding and tornadoes can have severe environmental repercussions. They cause significant damage to buildings and construction sites or important infrastructure. And all of that can lead to the result of pollutants into the environment. And based on current trends and research, we can expect that climate change is going to cause even more pollution releases going forward. The second big risk that I would like to highlight relates to potential liability that's caused by emerging contaminants, and specifically at this moment, PFOS, which stands for per uh, polyfluoroalkyl substances and polyfluoroalkyl substances, uh, short for PFOS. And that's how I'll refer to them uh, during the rest of the presentation. But we're currently seeing an evolution in how close the EPA and states are looking at PFOS and then moving to regulate them. So at the federal level, there aren't currently any enforceable standards, but EPA is much closer to setting enforceable standards for PFOS in drinking water under the Safe Water Drinking Act. It's also much closer to designating certain PFOS substances as hazardous constituents under RICRA. That's the statute that regulates hazardous waste in this country all the way from its generation to how it's stored and transported and then ultimately how it's disposed of. So designating these specific PFOS compounds under RICRA will lead entities to have new permit requirements. And then it also gives would potentially give EPA the authority to investigate and, and clean up PFOS contaminants under RICRA's corrective action program. And then finally, EPA is continuing to move forward with designating certain PFOS compounds as hazardous substances under CERCLA. Proposed rule is actually set to be put out for public comment as early as April. And then that would mean that a final rule could be issued next summer sometime. And and we'll talk about a little bit later why the CERCLA designation is going to be important. And then the last thing that I will touch on as a risk that our listeners should pay attention to is air pollution and indoor air quality. Those are becoming significant exposure points for organizations 
carriers are noticing an uptick in claims related to things like mold and Legionella, both of which have negative impacts on human health. And we can expect that to continue again because of climate change, especially in places where water intrusion is left behind and it allows mold to grow, or there's standing water that allows waterborne pathogens to grow. So I know this is a very long-winded answer, but I just want to tell our listeners that they should really take the time to step back and carefully evaluate their operations and understand where their exposure points for environmental liability might be. Why is insurance important for mitigating environmental risk? Yeah, take one. It almost goes without saying that the cost of environmental liability can be enormous. We're talking about claims in the hundreds of thousands, if not more. Environmental litigation tends to be extremely complex and it drags on for years. And so depending on the set of facts related to your claim, current pollution-specific insurance policies or more historic general liability policies can help defray the cost of that litigation. Oftentimes, I think our listeners probably know that insurance companies owe both the duty to defend and the duty to indemnify. And oftentimes we see that that duty to defend or the legal defense that carriers provide to their policyholders when they receive a claim is oftentimes more valuable than the indemnity dollars that might be available later if the claim ends up being covered. And that's just because the duty to defend is much uh, broader from a legal perspective and a carrier is obligated to defend its policyholder if there are any allegations that are potentially covered under the policy, even if they end up being untrue. And the last point that I really want to emphasize is that liability under federal and state environmental statutes and regulations can be incredibly far-reaching. So if we take the example of CERCLA, which is also known as the Superfund law, that statute has truly broad-reaching liability provisions. And uh, I, I should add, at the outset note that it is the statute that regulates the cleanup of controlled, uncontrolled hazardous waste sites. And then there are also release reporting requirements if there's accident spills or other emergency releases of pollutants and contaminants. But CERCLA is important because it imposes joint and several liability on re- responsible parties. And what that means is that if two or more people are found to be liable under the statute, then either one of those parties is responsible for paying the full extent of the damages. And in the CERCLA context, for example, a current owner, even if you didn't cause the contamination, you can be held strictly liable under CERCLA. And that means that you would have to pay the damages and then go out and seek contribution from other responsible parties. CERCLA is also extremely broad-reaching in the fact that it applies retroactively Uh, to releases of contaminants. So activity that might have been perfectly legal before its introduction in 1980 uh, can expose a party to liability. And then the last source of environmental liability that our listeners should be thinking about comes from the common law of torts. So things like nuisance, trespass, and the like can be used to assert that a property owner has been damaged by a toxic pollutant. Now, going back to a specific environmental risk that you mentioned and is frequently mentioned in the news these days, what is PFAS? Yeah, PFAS are a class of thousands of man-made chemicals. They've been widely manufactured, distributed, and used in the United States and actually across the globe since the 1940s. By some estimates, there are upwards of 7,000 PFAS compounds that exist. And they've been widely used because of the strength of the carbon-fluorine bond in them. And that strong bond has made these compounds useful in many different applications that require heat resistance, 
or water resistance, stain resistance, that kind of thing. And so for that reason, you see them in a wide variety of, of products inside the house and outside, ranging from things like firefighting foam to food packaging like pizza boxes or hamburger wrappers. They're also found in stain-resistant fabrics and furniture and nonstick cookware. And the reason that that strong carbon fluorine bond essentially means that the PFAS don't easily degrade in the environment or the human body. And that's why they've been given the nickname, the forever chemicals. They just don't easily degrade at all. And they're also extremely mobile once they're released into the environment. And what that means is when they're released, they can travel a long distance. And because PFAS have been widely used for going on 70 years now, and they persist in the environment, PFAS is found in, in the blood of people and animals all over the world. I think by some estimates, like 95% of Americans have some detectable level of PFAS in their blood. And scientific studies are showing that exposure to some PFAS uh, may be linked to harmful health effects in humans. So, for example, studies have shown that exposure to certain PFAS compounds can result in changes to liver enzymes, an increased risk of certain types of cancer, reproductive problems, and then an increase in thyroid disease. How can PFAS affect public risk management professionals and or organizations? That's a great question, Taekwon. I think there's several ways that PFAS will affect public risk management professionals and public entities in general going forward. It should come as no surprise that there's been a significant increase in legal and regulatory attention paid on PFAS, paid to PFAS substances. So public entities need to continually monitor how federal, the federal government and states are regulating PFAS because they're going to have to comply with those regulations. Right now, because of the length of time it takes EPA to introduce regulations, states are way out ahead of them, especially in the Northeast. And so figuring out how to comply with a hodgepodge of regulations is important. And, you know, it's particularly important for cities or states or other entities that are looking to purchase property that might be contaminated by PFAS because that, you know, obviously could, be, could expose them to liability. But in the due diligence process, they want to make sure that they're doing enough due diligence and, and complying with the rules uh, in CERCLA for all appropriate inquiries when that becomes, when the PFAS substances are designated as hazardous substances because there are protections within the statute that will uh, inure and protect an entity from liability. And so anyways, I'm just trying to say that in real estate transactions, really you should give particular attention to whether the, the property is contaminated by PFAS or not and think about how insurance could be used to mitigate that risk. And then I also think public risk management professionals need to be thinking about the potential liability that their organizations could owe to third parties related to PFAS contamination. So, for example, PFAS is continually discovered in or detected in drinking water across the country. And as we saw in Flint, Michigan, when lead was detected in drinking water there, this is going to result in lawsuits and significant liability. And so I think risk managers that are working for entities like water utilities or wastewater treatment plants and the like really need to be thinking about where their potential liability exposure lies. And then finally, the early litigation in this space has been focused on the manufacturers of PFAS. And many of those lawsuits have been brought by public entities that have alleged damage to their natural resources, including drinking water. And so I think to the extent you are a risk management professional for a entity 
that potentially has PFAS-related liability, you should be thinking about whether an affirmative claim could be useful. Firefighting foams that have been used at places like airports and military bases, oftentimes high levels of PFAS are detected there. And so pursuing an affirmative claim could really help defray the cost of constructing costly infrastructure or other things that will be in place as more regulations are implemented at the federal and state level. Can you identify some common coverage issues related to PFAS? Yeah, so the biggest coverage issue that's going to arise in PFAS-related insurance claims is the application of the pollution exclusion. So because PFAS have been used for decades, in fact, going on like 70 years now, there are two sources of coverage that might apply. Historical occurrence-based commercial general liability policies, and then more recent pollution-specific policies. And the first pollution exclusion wasn't introduced in a general liability policy in 1973. So if you think about when a lot of this contamination might have occurred, it predated 1973. So depending on the facts of your claim, and specifically when the environmental harm started, the general liability policies that were issued in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s are going to be extremely valuable for newly asserted claims because they don't have a pollution exclusion in them. And then, as I mentioned, the first pollution exclusion that was introduced in 1973 contained an important exception to it, and that's what's known as the sudden and accidental exclusion. And Something that might surprise our listeners is that courts interpret that phrase, sudden and accidental, differently. You might think that the pollution, in order for the pollution to be covered under your old general liability policy, there truly had to be an explosion or some sort of event that caused the contamination to occur. But there are some courts that really conclude that it really just has to be an unexpected event or accidental. There doesn't have to be a one-time explosion in order for the exception to apply. So to bring it back together, if your entity is, is faced with a PFAS-related claim and it results in contamination that occurred in the 70s or early 80s, there still might be coverage under your general liability policies that were issued in those years. And that's because the jurisdictions you know, interpret them differently. Choice of law and venue are going to become important considerations. And so to that end, it's important to work with an insurance coverage attorney sooner rather than later when you're faced with a claim. It should come as no surprise that because there were so many favorable rulings for policyholders that insurance companies have broadened the pollution exclusion. And so the absolute pollution exclusion was first introduced in 1985. And unlike the 1973 version, the absolute pollution exclusion focuses on the contaminant that was released or what the agent or the toxic agent was. And so I think when you have a policy that's got an absolute pollution exclusion in it, policyholders are going to expect to have a hard time getting coverage under those policies. And so, but that said, you really do need to take the time to uh, analyze the claim and figure out if, if these old historical liability policies will apply. What can our listeners expect this year for PFAS-related claims? Yeah, our listeners can expect uh, an increase in claims, litigation, and then also requests for information during the underwriting process. Many insurers have started to include PFAS-specific exclusions in their policies, but that's not universally true. And so now is the time, if you think your organization has PFAS-related risk, to get out there and try and procure coverage for PFAS-related risks. 
I will note that there's no uniform pollution legal liability policy out there, and a lot of negotiating can be done to modify the terms to fit your organization's needs. And again, so now's the time to try and get out there, procure that coverage, and then negotiate as long of a policy term as possible. There are certain carriers that are still providing 10-year policies. So how can the public sector prepare? We've touched on this already, Taekwon, but our listeners should evaluate, again, where their entity might be faced with PFAS liability. So, for example, our drinking water supplies located near a facility where PFAS is manufactured or used historically, that kind of analysis is going to help policyholders figure out what kind of coverage might be needed going forward. And in that same vein, policyholders should proactively examine their current insurance portfolio, including understanding what those policies cover, what the notice requirements are, and then it will help you identify if there are any obvious gaps in coverage that need to be addressed. And to the extent you find a gap in your coverage for environmental liability, it's good to work with a good broker that knows this particular area and help get yourself coverage. There are a number of insurance options out there. For example, pollution legal liability policies are intended to provide coverage for cleanup, initiated by governmental entities or other third parties. There's underground storage tank policies. Really, there's just a variety of different environmental coverages out there that could potentially help. And then if you decide that your organization does need to procure environmental-specific coverage, don't underestimate the amount of time it's going to take to complete the application process. Someone in your organization has to sign that application and make representations with information and it's correct. And so time is needed to really get through that process. If you somehow end up with incorrect information on the application, that can end up invalidating your coverage down the road. And lastly, I'll say don't forget to look backwards, too. An important part of preparation is going to be going back and looking for full historical general liability policies that would potentially apply because the contamination started much longer ago, and even though the claim wasn't inserted until today. If our listeners are faced with a PFAS or environmental-related insurance claim, What are some best practices or tips for providing notice to their carriers? If our listeners are going to take away one piece of advice from this podcast, this is probably it. Provide notice early, and unless the situation is truly an emergency, provide notice before you've incurred any costs. Uh, At Lathrop GPM, we advise our policyholder clients to notify any insurer that may potentially have coverage. That includes providing provisional notice to excess carriers. We also advise our, our clients to include the phrase and all potentially applicable policies in their written notice of the claim. That covers you in the instance where there are additional policies out there that you don't know about that might provide coverage. As the policyholder, you can always ask the carrier to conduct a policy search for you and then provide you with policies that they find in their records. And because current environmental insurance can be written on a occurrence basis or a claims-made and reported basis or just a claims-made basis, I want to note that it's important to really know what notice provisions there are. And if you have a claims-made policy, you need to report those claims during the policy period because they have harsh notice provisions that courts will construe against policyholders. And it's extremely challenging to overcome a late notice defense when a claims-made policy is implicated. And the last piece of advice is if your entity or organization is an additional insured on some other entity's policy, don't rely on the name insured to give notice. You should, uh, as the additional insured, provide notice on your own. 
we have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks to our speaker and all of our listeners. Please visit the Prima website to hear other Prima podcasts, view Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about other Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Have an amazing day.